You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts, Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, you had all this crazy food posted on Twitter yesterday. <laughs> I didn't know what to make of it. I did. Uh, okay, so for like four years now, yeah, this is a this is a secret part of my life. So I'm like really into cooking. Um, and I am so really not. <laughs> you are really not. We'd make a great sitcom couple. So for the past like four or five years, my wife and I and a, uh, a bunch of our friends have this dinner club where we like take turns hosting. And so like when you host, everyone like gives you some money, brings a bottle of wine, and you sort of get the opportunity to have the budget and time and an audience that will appreciate you cooking stuff that you normally wouldn't get a chance to cook. So I wouldn't be invited? You would, well, yeah, for so many reasons. <laughs> um, there are no turkey and American cheese sandwiches made, um, no diet Mountain Dew. It, the stuff you were posting looked legit. Like, so here, I judge food based on whether or not it looks like my brothers would like to eat it. And I think my uh-huh. brothers would have really been been enjoying your dinner party. So I think you were cooking some high quality Great. food. Yeah, we were, I was really happy with how it turned out. That I'm like a lot of my, so basically I like spent all day Friday and all day Saturday in the kitchen. And, but I was really happy with how everything turned out. So that was how I spent my weekend. Uh, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, we had, I spent my weekend with the band as per usual. We got, we yeah. got one more week of band. Uh, this past weekend was semi-state band competition. So there were 20 bands and we were second place out of 20 bands, um, which was pretty awesome. Uh, we were there's six judges, like that's how band competitions work, and five of the judges had us in first place, and one judge had us in ninth, so we kind of ended up getting tanked down to second. Um, so I think we've got a, a really good shot at maybe winning a state championship next week, which is pretty exciting. That is so awesome. I can't wait to hear how it goes next weekend. Yeah. Um, so that, that's been my weekend, and one more week to get through, and then marching man season's done. You have any time for some drafts this week? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did some drafts on Wednesday. I had time for about five drafts or so. Um, so I've met 22 trophies now. Uh, I've done a total of 66 drafts, so trophying exactly one in three. Uh, I've got a 135 and 60 overall match record for a 69% win rate. How about you? Nice. Uh, yeah, I have been doing mostly Innistrad off stream, but on stream, um, still, still doing the Ixalan cues. So I've got, uh, up to 31 trophies in 109 drafts. Um, so little between one and three, one and four, uh, 205 to 110 win loss record and up to a 65% win rate, which is, uh, a good far cry from my tanking at the start of this format. So I'm happy. I'm hopeful that maybe I will be able to get it up to 67 by, by the time Ixalan is all said and done. Yeah, that would be awesome. So this weekend was GP Phoenix. So we thought for the round table this week, we'd give you a little taste of a day two draft from the GP from none other than Shahar Shenhar, who went into day two in the tournament having nine owed the Swiss sealed portion of day one, which is absurd. Um, so Ben, you ready to take a seat at uh, the round table and see what Shahar opens? I am. Let's do it. Great. So some cards in consideration from pack one, pick one are anointed deacon. Uh, this is uh, sort of the hallmark common for the vampires deck it's four and a black for a three three vampire uh that says at the beginning of combat you may have a target vampire creature get plus two plus oh until end of turn uh vanquish the weak two and a black for the instant destroy target creature with power three or less pirates cutlass the lords of limited favorite common overall equipment for three mana that has an equipped cost of two and it gives the equipped creature plus two plus one and when it comes into play you attach it to a pirate you control merfolk branch walker that's a one in the green for the two one merfolk creature with explore and kapala warden of waves that's sort of the 
merfolk lord but not really a lord at rare one blue blue for a two two that says that uh spells that target merfolk you control from your opponent uh cost two more and abilities that target merfolk you control from your opponent cost two more what do you make of this pack ben yeah i think it's got a lot of strong cards in it uh merfolk branch walker might have been what i'd taken early on in the format but i think i know better now uh mm-hmm. and I, I think i'm trying to avoid green uh, at least in my early picks, unless it's a very, very strong card. Kapala I can knock out right away. Uh, that, that card wheels a lot and really only goes in Merfolk, and even then isn't really trying to do what Merfolk does. Um, Anointed Deacon's great in Vampires, but uh, taking a 5-drop at the start of the draft in a tribe-specific place isn't really where I want to be. I want to try to keep my options open the first few picks to try to feel like uh, I have the option to go into any lane, like starting around pick 4. So I think it comes down to Pirate's Cutlass versus Vanquish the Week for me. Uh, both great cards, but I think I would have to give the nod to Pirate's Cutlass as a colorless card that's going to go into any deck for the most part and be a very, very good card in that deck. Can I give you a little, uh, not quite non-sequitur, but I had the option between Pirate's Cutlass and Repeating Barrage uh, the other day. Oof. I, that's tough. It's pack tough. one, pick one? I... Mm-hmm. I think i would take repeating barrage but it's really close for me yeah i took cutlass <laughs> I, I wouldn't fault you for it and and people in chat were not happy about it but like i just know i'm playing cutlass 100 percent of the time and that's so valuable in this format it really is i ended up not being in a red deck so it like just sort of was like and that's like confirmation bias like made me feel good about my choice <laughs> but like it really does like i'm gonna only be in red like what i don't know 40 percent of the time <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to happen that often, and I'm going to play Pirates Cutlass all the time. So I like that. I think the choice is it's very close between Cutlass and Vanquish the Week, but I, I agree with you. If if you didn't listen to How to Draft and Win our last week's episode, um, you're missing out. You should definitely download that and listen to it after you finish with this episode. But we are on the beard plan for Ixalan, and the E is for enhancements. Pirates Cutlass, top of that list. Yep. Um, Shahar Shenhar takes Vanquish the Week out of this pack. I I can't really fault him for this. I think the picks are very close, but I do think uh, we are both valuing the openness that Pirates Cutlass gives you. Yeah, and so I think him taking Vanquish the Week there maybe shows a a slight preference towards wanting to play black and or valuing like instant speed removal very highly, like if people are on these enhancements plan but part of the problem with vanquish the week is that it doesn't it doesn't hit the creatures after they've landed their one with the wind so you're kind of hoping they try to cast one with the wind into three open mana which i can't imagine many people are doing day two of a gp Mm -hmm. so yeah there sorry i want to make another side note here and i know that we've got a lot to talk about this episode but it's very interesting so i don't know if you you probably didn't get a chance to watch a lot of the coverage from yesterday but i was in the kitchen most of the day cooking so i had it on my phone and they on their downtime were going through these like uh ben stark had put together a top five uh, commons in each color list that they would review in between matches and he has contract killing as the best black common and everyone seemed in agreement with that which was very shocking to me and he doesn't have skullduggery in his top five if wow you believe that in his top five black commons top five black commons he doesn't have skullduggery ben s whoa ben s i know yeah that's surprising uh, to me very surprising so anyway moving on so shahar shanhar has got vanquished the week as his first pick. Moves into the second pack. He's got Shaper Apprentice, uh, one and a blue for the 2-1 Merfolk that gets flying if you have another Merfolk. Bishop Soldier, one and a white for the 2-2 Vampire with Lifelink. Adanto Vanguard, one and a white for the 1-1 Vampire that when it attacks gets plus 2 plus 0, and you can pay 4 life to give it indestructible until end of turn. Raptor Hatchling, that's one and a red for the 1-1 that when it's dealt damage you make a 3-3 Dinosaur with Trample. And Pounce, one and a green, instant speed, target creature you control, fights target creature you don't control. 
Yeah, so interesting that there's no black card here to pair along with our mm-hmm. Vanquish of the Week. So I think immediately we're just trying to pick the strongest card in the pack, uh, which comes down to Bishop, Soldier, and Adanto Vanguard for me. And I, while I think it's close, I think Adanto Vanguard is, is pretty clearly better, and I would be selecting that here. Yeah, I'm in agreement, and Shahar is as well, and he snaps that up. So he moves into pack three. Uh, sees a significantly weaker pack. He's got Revel and Riches still hanging out there, though I'm not surprised to not see him take it. That's a four and a black for the enchantment uh, that says whenever a creature your opponent control dies, you get a treasure, and then it has this flavor text at the bottom that says uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, if you control ten treasures or more, you win the game. Uh, uh, Odapek Huntmaster is one in a red for the one-two human shaman that makes your dinosaur spells one mana cheaper and can tap to give target dinosaur creature haste until end of turn. Slash of Talons, a removal spell that uh, just has gone up and up and up for us, I think, from the start of the format, where we thought this was like unimpeccable timing or something. Uh, this is a single white mana for an instant that deals two damage to target attacking or blocking creature. And Frenzied Raptor, uh, two in a red for the four-two dinosaur. Yeah, so a Again, like, while Revel Enriches is a black card here, not really a winning strategy in the format, in my opinion, so I would immediately rule that out and just kind of say there are no black cards here. Slash of Talons does go with our Adanto Vanguard, but it's significantly weaker than the best card in the pack to me, which is Otapek Huntmaster. That card is a house, a reason to move into dinosaurs, and a very, very scary card on the other side of the battlefield. So already we're kind of seeing the drawback here of taking Vanquish the Week, more confirmation bias over yeah. over Pirate's Cutlass, but uh, it really does leave you flexible. And I think uh, despite, you know, having a black card and a white card in my pile at this point, if I'm Shahar, I'm still going to slam Otapek Huntmaster here and look to maybe move into uh, white-red dinosaurs or something along those lines. But at the very interested, seeing a third pick, third pick Otapek Huntmaster with not a lot of other powerful cards in the pack makes me want to want to see what's going on there and speculate on that. Yeah, I mean, I just couldn't agree more. This feels like it's the exact time that I would feel confident that Odebeck Huntmaster is at least somewhat of a signal. Um, like, pick three. I think it's a strong card in its archetype. Uh, there's not much else in the pack. Uh, I don't really want to get stuck on my first two picks and just sort of see what's open, and Huntmaster seems like a signal there. Uh, Shahar seems to think not, and he grabs Slash of Talons, which I think probably just shows his preference for uh, wanting to make sure he gets to play a Danto Vanguard, and he's not wrong. Like, that's a very powerful card, but I am sort of... I wonder if he's just sort of off dinosaurs completely or thinks that Huntmaster, like, pigeonholes him too much or, or what, but... Uh, this does seem like a pick where he's missing out on a little bit of value. Um, so he moves into pick four, and he's got Water Trap Weaver, uh, two and a blue for the two tumor folk that when it enters the battlefield, you tap target creature and opponent controls, and it doesn't untap during its next untap step. Uh, Raging Swordtooth, that's three red-green for the 5-5 five, five with Trample Dinosaur, that when it comes into play, you deal one damage to everything, everything else, I should say. Uh, Thrash of Raptors, three and a red for a 3-3 three, three Dinosaur, and if you control another dino, it gets plus two plus seven Trample. And Brazen Buccaneers, three and a red for the 2-2 two, two Human Pirate with Hay and explore yeah this this pack is not good news for shahar here so no no white or black cards after going vanquish adanto vanguard slash of talons yeah um, so i think we're just looking to take the the best card out of these um and to me the most powerful cards raging sword tooth and had i taken otopec Huntmaster last pick i think i would be tempted by it but i still think thrash of raptors is a very good option and is just one color with the otopec Huntmaster. so thrash of raptors would leave the option to play maybe a white-red Dinos deck that would still let us play a Danto Vanguard. So had we mm-hmm. taken our line of Cutlass into Vanguard into Otapek Huntmaster, I would be on Thrash of Raptors here. If yeah. I'm if I'm Shahar with a Vanquish, a Danto Vanguard, and a Slash of Talons, 
I think Water Trap Weaver looks like the best option to me for Shahar here. I, I really like White Blue as a deck, and Water Trap Weaver is a key card in that deck. Um, mm-hmm. And just just as a very strong blue card. Uh, and he doesn't really know where he's at at this point, so I think I would take Water Trap Weaver if I were Shahar. Yeah, this is tough. I think I still, if I was Shahar, still might lean Thrash of Raptors, realizing that I've passed Huntmaster and now I'm going to pass Raging Swordtooth. But I feel like it's a strong signal. Like, I'm seeing Huntmaster in the last pack, and now I'm seeing Swordtooth and Thrash. Like, Dinosaurs is open. Yeah, I think so. I don't know why you don't want to move in on that. Like, yeah, that it's sort of confusing to me. His pick here is he doesn't pick either or any of the three cards we were just discussing. He grabs Brazen Buccaneers. That is strange to me and pretty pretty hard to defend that pick. I think Brazen Buccaneers is just a much worse card than Thrash of Raptors. Yeah. Uh, I guess he, like, it's weird because it felt like he was sort of pigeonholing himself with Slash of Talons into being white. And now feels like he's like, well, I don't want to go, if he's going to be red-white and take Brazen Bucks, then you should take Thrash of Raptors because in red-white, Thrash of Raptors is going to be just fine. Yeah, it's a, it's a much better card. It's, a, it's, it's the payoff at the common level for being in a Dinosaur's deck. Yeah. Um, so pick five, he sees a pack with a handful of playables. He's got uh, Angrath's Marauders, uh, maybe not the most playable but uh that's the uh, five red red rare four four that says when something you control deals damage it deals double that damage instead uh shaper apprentice again the one in a blue merfolk the two one uh perilous voyage one in a blue for an instant that says return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand if it costs two or less you get to scry two thrash of raptors again a vampire zeal the white mana instant Give target creature plus two plus two until end of turn. If it's a vampire, it gets first strike. Sure strike, one in a red. Instant target creature gets plus three plus O oh, and first strike until end of turn. And you'll see why I got to bring this up. Uh, Suncrowned Hunters, four red red for the five four dinosaur that has enrage deal three damage to your opponent. Yeah, so I think Shahar is pretty clearly seeing at this point that white and or black is not going to happen in his seat. The only white or black card in consideration here is Vampire Zeal. And while a very good combat trick in any white deck, he just hasn't seen much white, which would be worrying me if I were Shahar. Mm-hmm. Uh, strongest card here, probably like, I don't know, some combination of the the combat tricks and or Thrash of Raptors in white and red, which it, which it looks like Shahar is. Yeah. Difficult to say what he would pick here because he's gone so differently from where I would have gone. So had, had I gone Pirates Cutlass into Vanguard, into Otapet Huntmaster, into Thrash of Raptors, I would be snapping up another Thrash of Raptors here myself, and I would yeah. be feeling pretty good about having red Otapet Huntmaster as a signal and you know stayed open, stayed flexible, and I think I'd be on track for a very good Dinosaurs deck. As mm-hmm. with what Shahar has got in his pile at this point, I think I would be taking like Vampire Zeal or Thrash of Raptors maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm not like thrilled about either of those options. But what can you do when you've sort of dis like you've made you've made these decisions to not leave yourself open to what the table is telling you to draft, which is like sort of what we're we've been preaching on this podcast from day one, like that you really need to read the table in this format. Yes, absolutely. So it's really tough to know what he is, what sort of he's thinking at the moment in terms of like what he's looking for or trying to identify as what he should be drafting. Because right now it sort of feels like he's trying to force something, but I'm not sure what that something is. Well, it feels like what he's trying to force is just not even forcible in his seat. Like, right. Like there's just not even an option to force it. Like and have yeah. a mediocre black-white deck or a white-red deck. Mm. So he grabs Suncrowned Hunters. That's so strange to me. That, that card's like borderline unplayable except in a very focused dinosaurs deck and even then you'd just much rather have like but there are two 
two better red cards in the pack. That's what yeah, I don't sure, understand. Like, yeah, Sure Strike and Thrasher Raptors are just both better cards. Yeah. So he grabs that and goes into pick six, picks up sort of, sort of. I feel like we can run through the rest of this draft. He uh, he grabs a Vampire Zeal in the next pack over, I mean, the pack's kind of weak, but he's got like some playable uh, blue, black, and green commons there. And then he just goes like Fire Shrine Keeper 7th, Encampment Keeper 8th. So that those are the, the, the one drop commons. Fire Shrine Keeper is the red 1-1 one, one Menace. And Encampment Keeper is the white 1-1 one, one First Strike. And then he wheels Stormfleet Pyromancer out of the first pack. So certainly red seems somewhat open. Because um, that, that I think is like a little later maybe with or about where Stormfleet Pyromancer should go. Yeah. The whole draft was very strange, and also the coverage of the draft sort of felt strange. Like, he had mostly red cards in his deck at the end of pack one, and the coverage team were sort of talking about how many colors he was in and how his deck was all over the place. And while I felt like the value of his cards was maybe all over the place, like, he was pretty firmly in red and could go wherever he wanted. Right, had just not picked the most optimal red cards out of the packs, it didn't seem like. Yeah, but then that just made what happened at the start of pack two so shocking was that he opens Hostage Taker and he took a Raptor Companion over it. What? Yeah, like he opens the best rare in the format. That seems like a good way to salvage any draft. Yeah, just be like, oh great, I just jam, I'll be like red, black, or red, blue, and jam treasures and somehow shove Hostage Taker and get free wins. And especially because he's playing in pod, like that means he's going to have to play against Hostage Taker probably. I don't know. It was very confusing. I don't think his deck turned out uh, very well. And I I mean, it wasn't the most easy of pack ones to navigate, but I I don't, I, I disagree with a lot of his decisions. I mean, what do I know? I've never 9-0'd a, a Swiss, a day, day one of Swiss. So he certainly knows how what he's doing in this format. But isn't he a two-time world champion also? Yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I have a limited podcast that like dozens of people listen to. So. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. All right, so we're going to take a little departure today. Uh, something we've never done on the show is we're going to talk about improving gameplay in Ixalan. So we're going to depart from what we primarily do, which is discuss draft decisions and draft values, and talk about some board states and ways to improve the decisions that you're making in Ixalan gameplay specifically. So before we get into that, we just want to talk about some like general outlines of considerations for any game of Magic. And that is that making decisions is about measuring the exchange of resources resources between you and your opponent. And those resources, I feel like we often think of them as card-for-card exchanges, but there's a lot more happening in game. So think about resources as not only that, but your life total, uh, the cards in your hand, the cards on the battlefield, the mana spent for each of your actions, and the sort of objective value of the cards. So, you know, if we're talking about trading a two-drop for a two-drop, if you're two-drop, if we're talking about trading Bishop Soldier for Nest Robber, for example, those are not, that's not really an equal exchange of resources. Whichever player has the Nest Robber is making out like a bandit in that yes, trade. Yes, absolutely. I don't, my opponents keep doing that. I don't understand it. Like, I don't trade my Bishop Soldiers for anything. Uh, because it's such a good card and it's relevant into turn 10 of games of Ixalan if the game lasts that long. And my opponents, anytime my opponent trades away their Bishop Soldier, I, f- I feel like I got away with something dirty. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what we just discussed, these these categories of, of resources, Bishop Soldier trades on two axes. It trades as a card of value and it trades for your life source um, so or, or life total. Uh, so th- that's pretty big. Not a lot of cards can do that. And I also think that uh, a basic way to look at... Uh, how decisions 
can be beneficial is to look at how actual resources are traded. So what we just talked about, like the 2-2 lifelink for a 2-1 random haste. But you can think about like base level, a card for another card is at some level a fine trade. Or think about attacks, like, well, is this attack a good attack for me? Am I getting in one point of damage for their two points of damage that they're going to crack back on? So if you've got like a 1-1 flyer and an opponent has a 2-1 flyer in play, your attack is not going to be good. Like they're going to not block and then they're going to attack you for two. So that exchange of resource is not a good exchange for you. So thinking about those kinds of trades, I think is an important way to go into the board states that we're going to look at today and, and think about what decisions you would make as we, as we describe these uh, board states today. Um, so two, two things we're going to look at today in a broad scope is crafting a game plan from your opening hand and how that game plan can evolve through the course of the game. Ben, do you want to talk about uh, crafting a game plan from your opening hand? Yeah, so, you know, there's there's a lot of questions to ask yourself here when you're looking at your, your opening hand. You know, you've, you've drawn your hand, you've decided to keep her mulligan, and let's say you've kept, and then you're looking, like, what what do I need to draw here to for this hand to be good or to carry out a specific game plan that I've got in mind? Do I need to draw lands? Do I need to draw creatures? Is my hand playing for the late game? Does it have removal? Do I need to draw removal? Is my hand aggressive? Does it want to curve out? All of those things you should be trying to decide. As soon as you've decided whether or not your hand's keepable, you should try to formulate a plan for what what it looks like your hand wants to do. Is your deck backing up what your hand wants to do? So for example, you know, you've drafted a very low to the ground, uh, curve out style deck, and you know, you're you're planning on going your deck wants to go two drop three drop four drop but you're maybe maybe your hands missing a two drop does that mean you're gonna have to play more controlling role despite the fact that you drafted an aggressive deck or did you draft a control deck but you know you drew one of your three two drops and you're gonna be able to curve out and put pressure on your opponent so being able to make informed decisions about whether or not you know your game plan matches up with the type of deck you drafted and is it is it going to be a successful game plan based on what you see in your opening hand there. I think also that being on the player, the draw is an important uh, decision that can affect what your game plan is going to be like, you know, having a three drop as your first play on the play is much different than having a three drop as your first play on the draw. And, having like a handful of removal spells when you're an aggressive deck is a lot different when you're on the play or the draw like are you going to get an extra draw step to maybe find some action etc that that's a i think another thing that people may overlook or not think is as big a deal as i think it is yeah and i think in in this format i'm glad you brought up on the player on the draw because i normally am not like super worried about that i care about that a lot in this format and i think that's like your first big indicator i think if you're on the play in this format you and you can curve out, you should be looking to take an aggressive role. And I think on the draw, you should be planning on being defensive, just initially, at least, I think. Because if your opponent gets the chance to play the first two drop, they're going to have the chance to attack into you and play their combat trick or not. Like, they're the person that gets to make the decision of, are we starting a race? Yeah, for sure. So we're going to take a look here at our first uh, sample hand and try to figure out, you know, what what sort of sequence of events you want to happen, what what's type of role you want to take with this opening hand. So uh, our first example hand here, you see island, mountain, mountain, so three lands, a dual shot, so a little bit of removal, shipwreck looter, stormfleet spy, and marauding looter. So Ethan, you're looking at that hand, what, what's going through your head? So I can't really 
craft a better starting hand than this. Um, this is an actual starting hand from a, a match I played. And I think that uh, this hand just sort of tells you what it wants to do. It wants to go clearly 2-drop, 3-drop, 4-drop. It wants to reap the raid benefits from Stormfleet Spy and Marauding Looter. Um, I'm going to miss out on my raid benefit from Shipwreck Looter, which is totally fine. It's going to fuel uh, the, the cards in my hand. So I'm already thinking, like, basically four turns ahead. I know what I'm going to be doing with this hand, barring my opponent not playing a, a like, 1-4 blocker on turn two, like getting an Ixali's Diviner and finding a non-land spell mm -hmm. but i think that that's my game plan i'm just gonna be trying to curve out and beat down and and draw some cards and loot through some cards and maybe use the dual shot to get a blocker out of the way but that that's what this hand makes me think of i think sometimes though your hand doesn't match up well with how the game progresses and you need to have that game plan evolve now this specific hand uh sort of just worked out as you might think it just was attacking every turn, looting, drawing cards, and it worked out fine. But sometimes that doesn't happen, and your game plan needs to evolve as the board state and turns of the game progress, and you need to be aware of what we're going to call decision points or turning points in gameplay. So we've got another example hand for you that is perhaps not as, as clear-cut. Uh, so, Ben, this hand is uh, Swamp, Swamp, Plains, so three lands. You've got Skullduggery, Walk the Plank, Pious Interdiction, and Deathless Ancient in your hand on the play. Yeah. What do you make of this? That's like a grip full of removal there. That is some, yeah, high, sure is some high quality removal, and you've got a finisher in your hand already in Deathless Ancient. So to me, when I look at this hand, it's got a pretty clear game plan of this, this hand wants to go to the late game and try to use its removal maybe a little more aggressively than normal since you've got so many in hand. Normally, you're trying to preserve your removal, I think, for the best creatures that your opponent plays, but mm -hmm. with the amount of removal in this hand... Um, I think you could maybe be a little more liberal with your use of removal and just, just trying to draw. His hand wants to draw a creature um, and just try to stabilize and I think win with Desolate Ancient. That would be my initial my initial read on this opening hand. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go into our first decision point here with his hand, like progress into the game a few turns. And just a, a quick note, if you're a more visual person, uh, we're going to have imager links posted to all of these sample hands and... Uh, decision points so you can see screenshots of the gameplay if what we're illustrating is a little hard for you to visualize and you want to follow along at home um so our first first thing here uh you've drawn seeker squire and pirates cutlass plus you've explored into a swamp from casting seeker squire so your decision point is this turn three you've got seeker squire in play as a one two your opponent has mountain forest and otapec Huntmaster in play your choices of playing cards are, do you want to play your Pirate's Cutlass, or do you want to use your premium removal spell of Walk the Plank to kill their Otopec Huntmaster? What, what, what's your thought process there, Ethan? So what has changed from our starting hand is we've drawn a creature on curve, which is perfect. We've drawn a land to help us get towards Deathless Ancient, which is great. And we've drawn Pirate's Cutlass, which is not perhaps the best draw here as... We're going to have to invest a lot of mana into it to suit up the Seeker Squire, and we could put it on the Deathless Ancient, but really we, we need creatures for Pirate's Cutlass to be good, and that's the department where we're lacking at the moment. So what I'm seeing on my opponent's side of the board is something that is going to stop me from getting to the late game. Odebeck Huntmaster, as we talked about in the roundtable, is sort of the, the fuel for the red-green dino deck. It's the thing that's able to power out the Raptors, uh, the... Um, uh, thrashing rap thrash of raptors on turn three with haste and then sort of snowball out of control so while i think a lot of players might consider one using all of their mana efficiently here to play pirate's cutlass because i think that's a pretty big level up when you realize like oh i should like 
if I can use all my mana in one turn, that's like the best use of my resources, which is true. But here, I think the best use of your resources is to not let your opponent's deck get out of control before you have a chance to stabilize. And while I'm not thrilled about using my premium unconditional two mana removal spell on their two drop, I think that's what you have to do here to allow your game plan to progress of getting to Deathless Ancient. Yeah, I'm, I'm in total agreement. I am I am terrified of Otopek Huntmaster, and I, I pretty much kill it on site. It represents such a mana advantage and such a damage advantage for your opponent. So next turn, they could potentially untap, play a four-drop dinosaur, and attack you with it, which just puts you so far behind if all you mm-hmm. did was play Pirate's Cutlass on the board. Yeah, it's re- really, really tough to deal with. So I think, I think getting that out of the way is the correct decision, and it is the one that I made uh, in the game. So we're going to skip ahead uh, a couple turns here. We're going to go to turn number five. So the things that have changed. Your opponent has played a Nest Robber, which you have killed with a Skullduggery. And they've played a New Horizons and a Deep Root Warrior. Um, so their board just consists of... They, they can untap next turn with five, potentially six mana if they play a land, and they have a 2-2 in play. And you've drawn a Territorial Hammer Skull and a Sky March Bloodletter. So you've played Hammer Skull the last turn. You uh, are going into your, your fifth turn here. You only have four lands in play. I think things have changed here, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, it looks like, you know, you have the, the chance to be much more aggressive here. So based on where our opening hand was of removal spell, removal spell, removal spell, six drop, uh, we've drawn a lot of action. A lot of cheap action. A lot of cheap creatures that really affect the board. And Territorial Hammer Skull being the big one here is going to make it very hard for your opponent to take a defensive role this game. Um, so I think that incentivizes us to start start attacking and use our removal more proactively to get get threats on their side out of the way and allow our hammer skull to keep putting the pressure on so at this point i would be looking to attack in this turn uh with seeker squire and hammer skull tapping down deep root warriors so leaving your opponent with no blockers that kind of forces them into a race which it looks pretty good for us uh since we've got pious interdiction in hand to stop their next big threat and gain us back some life from them attacking us back with deep root warrior as well as casting a Sky March Bloodletter this turn, which is going to drain them and give us a flying evasive threat potentially to uh, equip our Pirate's Cutlass on down the road. So at this point, I'm immediately shifting gears and looking to, you know, from my initial strategy of, you know, I want to take a more controlling role, play to the late game. I'm not trying to wrap this game up in a hurry based on what I drew. Yeah, for sure. I, I think now this this may not seem like the most in-depth decision that you've ever seen in a board state of magic, but I think if you start... I think it's hard to shake that initial impression of what you think the game is going to be. I think maybe it's a little harder when you think you're going to have an aggressive start and then that game doesn't pan out that way. And so it's, I think, a little harder to pump the brakes. But here, I think it's similarly difficult to recognize on the correct turn when you should be attacking. And just really looking at the numbers here, you're going to be trading three damage getting into your opponent for two damage that they can crack you back with their deeper warrior, assuming you don't chump block with your Sky March Bloodletter that you're going to play. So uh, I think this is a really crucial point to just go, you know what, I got to start cracking in. I now have drawn enough action in terms of early drops to shift this game in my favor, at least in, in this stage. 
Right. So what the resource we're looking at here that we want to trade profitably on our end is the life totals, right? So yes. we've, we've and, and so we've got we've got the advantage in two of these axes axes we were describing. I almost said axes. <laughs> axes. It's axes, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So we're ahead on board. We've got three creatures on board to our opponent's one. We've got a seeker squire, a hammer skull, and a blood letter versus them only having a deep root warrior. So we have a board presence advantage. And we're going to have a damage advantage, assuming we initiate the race, because we've got the advantage in power and toughness on the battlefield, and we've got a removal spell loaded up in hand of Pious Interdiction that's going to gain us back life and stop their next big threat. So I think all of that stuff points to we want to be the aggressor here. Mm-hmm, for sure. So we're going to we're gonna progress a little one, one turn further in this game, uh, where you come to another decision point. Uh, it's turn six. Your opponent has added Thrash of Raptors to the battlefield, and you have the choice of playing pious interdiction or pirates cutlass and equipping to your sky march blood letter here so i think there's you know several initial temptations you know to fire off your removal spell immediately or you know enhance your creature as we've been preaching in beard so you're staring down at that ethan what, what's your thought process so my thought process is i kind of want to do the math so right now what is pious interdiction doing for me it's going to gain me two life it's going to use uh four of my five available mana to remove a creature theoretically permanently from the game. But I have ter- the the uh, addition of Territorial Hammer Skull to the game sort of throws a wrench in the mix because I do get that blocker out of the way anyway with the Hammer Skull in play. And if I put Pirate's Cutlass on my Bloodletter, that's going to add two power to the board this turn that can attack, making my total attack this turn seven. And my opponent is at 14. So... I can just sort of think about, well, if this turn and next turn I get to attack them with the seven power and toughness I have on the board, once I cast Pirate's Cutlass, that's going to put him dead. And I'm at a healthy life total of 17, so even if some, you know, let's say they play Charging Monstrosaur next turn, and they get to attack in with a 5-5 haste, that's sort of like the worst case scenario I can think of. Right, because it's also going to pump their Thrasher Raptors. That would be pretty bad news. That'd be pretty bad news, but... I, I'm winning that, right? That They're going to attack me for 12 in that case with the Deep Root Warrior, the Thrash Raptors, and the Monstrosaur. And I then crack them back with the 7 on board, and they're, they're dead. So that doesn't change it. And the fact that I know I have Pious Interdiction in play and my opponent doesn't means that that's information I have that they're not privy to that allows me to know that, okay, what if I put Pirate's Colors on here? I'm telling them that I have to race, that, 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 that we're still racing, and I, I'm ahead. So I'm going to attack them for seven, tap Thrash of Raptors. Let's say they play a creature next turn. They would have to leave all three back for Pious Interdiction to not allow Territorial Hammer Skull to tap down the rest of their blockers, right? And that's information they don't know, so why would they think about that? I mean, they have to sort of think about that we could have a removal spell, etc. But... I think you got to play to what's the line of winning here. And uh, all signs point to adding power and toughness to the board now rather than in the future, because that puts my opponent on a two-turn clock. Right. E- either of these options, pi- casting Pious Interdiction or casting Pyrus Cutlass, both of those options are going to put you as the aggressor. So mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to decide which one is better for you as the aggressor. And I yeah. think your, your point of doing the math and Pirate's Cutlass Getting in seven this turn, leaving your opponent seven dead to an all-out swingback is great for you for two reasons. One, you're putting them on a two-turn clock. Two, I think in Ixalan, just in general, anytime you're able to be the person's putting your opponent in a position to where they're forced to leave back blockers or go yeah. for a double block is great for you. So anytime you can maneuver a game state into the to the point where your opponent's got to decide, hey, I'm not, like, if you've started a race, you don't want to be the first person to blink, in my experience. Like, it feels pretty bad if you've been racing 
and then you're the one that has to like oh i've got to leave back two creatures and double block and pray they don't have a combat trick here feels yeah. like that's like a critical point that a lot of games of ixalan boil down to i totally totally agree what we were saying last week was you want to be the person asking the questions not the person looking for answers you know um and i think that's sort of the synthesized here in this this third decision point um so as we looked through those different turns ben we were looking at not only the cards in play but every time we we sort of caught up to what was going on in the turn we looked at okay this is what we've drawn this is how the the previous turns have progressed this is what our opponent's board state looks like this is what's going on in their side of the battlefield so we're looking at a lot of different things right there are different places where information comes from on the battlefield or uh, sorry not on the battlefield but from the game so what's going on there yeah so there's three main places that information exists what's on the board what's in your hand and what's in your opponent's hand um so on board that information is face up to both players and you need to be constantly keeping track of that to determine who has an advantage so that would include you know has your opponent missed land drops have you missed land drops who's got more creatures on the battlefield who's got the biggest creature on the battlefield who's ahead in life totals, all that type of stuff. You should constantly be keeping track of that and trying to determine, do I have the advantage or does my opponent have the advantage? So you can be informed on whether or not you want to be proactive and making attacks or whether you're the defensive player and should be on blocks. Another really important piece of information uh, when you're keeping track of the board state is to remember that combat favors the defending player. So if it's maybe fairly even and you're trying to decide, should I attack here or not? If it's pretty close, you should probably err on letting your opponent attack into you. Uh, since the defending player is going to be a little favored there. However, in Ixalan, sometimes that's not even the case. Sometimes you really want to make your opponent be the defending player, especially if they've tapped out and you know you've got a combat trick in hand. So all things to take careful note of there when you're trying to keep track of the board state. One of the things that I think is so important about analyzing the information on board is that it's available to both players. So when anything happens that doesn't that is fishy with the information that is face up to both players, then I think you need to give your opponent the benefit of the doubt that they've got something to turn that into their advantage. So I think having like just being able to go like, well, if I was looking at this from my perspective, from what I see, this doesn't look like a smart move or like I have lethal on board. What could my opponent possibly have that makes that not the case? Because unless your opponent is terrible, which is possible, but let's like, that is not the default assumption you should be making. Yes, I I remember exactly when I learned this lesson. Mm -hmm. It was when I started playing, like about last year, I started playing a lot of the the PPTQs and the PTQs Mm. on Sunday. And the the level of difference in people's play skill was like noticeably different to me of the people that had qualified for the PTQ on Sunday when I was playing on Sunday. So I, I kept getting outplayed on Sunday. Like I would get into these types of situations where decisions were close and I my opponent would do something fishy. And I wouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt, and I would lose. And I remember, like, I just kind of decided, I've got to start, like, assuming the worst case from my opponent when they're making plays that don't seem right to me. Yeah, and that, I think, comes from a a fundamental understanding of what is face-up to both players. So the second place you can track information is what's in your hand. So most situations, that is only known to you. Sometimes part of your hand is known to your opponent from cards like a Duress or a Kitesail Freebooter. Um... But the the cards in your hand are mostly known to you. So how does that affect the board? How do things like haste creatures, tempo creatures like the hammer skull or a water trap weaver, combat tricks, removal spells are all things that are going to change the calculus of the information on the board. So you might see like, well, this attack 
based on what's on the board doesn't look good, but I know that I have this combat trick that I can use or this removal spell I can use, or I know that I have a water trap weaver that can tap something down pre-combat, anything like that. Um, or I know I need to get, I know this attack looks fishy, but I need to get this raid trigger enabled. That's another thing that I think makes fishy attacks harder to evaluate in this format is the addition of raid. Yeah. And I think another another thing, the third factor here we're taking into consideration is what's in your opponent's hand. So if, you're, if your opponent has done something fishy based on what's going on in the board state, you're trying to use deductive reasoning to figure out, you know, what's going on in their hand. And there's a lot of ways, different ways to glean information about what your opponent has in their hand other than just, you know, casting a spell like duress that would let them let you see what's in their hand. Mm-hmm. Some clues to, to look for things here. Have they left mana up when they could have re-equipped a pirate's cutlass? That would give you a good clue that they've got some sort of instant speed interaction in their hand that they value leaving up higher than re-equipping a cutlass. Mm-hmm. I think in general, you should not assume that your opponent just missed re-equipping a pirate's cutlass. Did they explore and put a good card into your graveyard? Explore is a mechanic in this set that gives you a lot of information about what's going on on your opponent's side of the battlefield when they explore. Yeah. If they're If they're binning a good card... You can either assume they've got cards in hand that they need to win the game already or that they're really short on lands and are trying to hit land drops. Either way, you get to learn a lot about what's going on in their hand as far as how you need to prepare based on what they're putting into the graveyard or not. It's also information that you're giving up when you do that, which I think you also need to remember. Like when you explore and put a kind of card on top or a kind of card in your graveyard, you are giving up information to your opponent. And you need to be tracking what that information is and how it can be perceived. Yes. And I, I've put, there's been times I've put like a skullduggery in my graveyard that I revealed to my opponent because it, that card loses so much value mm-hmm. when your opponent knows that it's coming. Yeah. Um, and, and can even let them maneuver the game to where they can blow you out because they can put, put you in a position where you have to cast skullduggery and then they know it's coming and they've got an answer ready for it. Exactly. Another thing to think about would be, is your opponent racing when the math on the board, you know, says they're not supposed to be winning this race? That clues you in that they've got a card in their hand, maybe like a pious interdiction that's a removal spell that's going to gain them some life back. Maybe it's a haste creature. Maybe it's a water trap weaver. All these cards that impact what's going on on the board um, when they enter the battlefield in, an, in a very immediate way. All of those different things are, are going to be context clues for you that you need to try to pick up on, you know, helping you deduce what your opponent's got in their hand so we've, we've got an example here for you um to where you where you need to try to figure out you know what what the best play for you is based on maybe some unknown information so here's the scene this is a, a different game than the one we were analyzing previously this is example number three slash decision number four if you're following along with our with our screenshots on imager so you're at eight life your opponent's at 12 you have a dustborn sky marcher a legion conquistador and a territorial hammer skull in play against your opponent's headstrong brute They've got one card in hand, which you know is Repeating Barrage, and seven lands in play, so almost enough to cast the Repeating Barrage and buy it back. They're one land drop away from that, and they've got four mountains. It's your turn. What's going through your head when you look at that scenario, Ethan? So it's a really interesting situation because all the information is face up. You And we should say you have a card in hand, and it's a swamp. So all your action is on the board, and you know what your opponent has. So you're in a top-deck war but your opponent has repeating barrage in hand. This is a really tough situation. I think there are a lot of scenarios to consider here. So the first scenario is, what happens if I attack with everything? So if you attack with everything, you're getting in for five this turn, your opponent's going to go to seven. On their turn, the crazy thing about them having repeating barrage in hand and seven lands in play is that either a land or a spell is a really bad draw for you. 
because a land means they get to attack with Headstrong Brute, fire off the barrage, and rebuy it, which is going to be six total damage against you, and then you'll be dead next turn to a repeating barrage play. So then if they don't draw land, then they are probably drawing something that either pumps their creature, kills your creature, or kills you, or is a creature that can go on the battlefield to attack and block itself. So that leads me to believe that attacking with all three creatures is a really bad decision, Um, because I can't really craft a situation of a top deck for them that doesn't cause me to lose that race. So then the question is, well, can I attack with some of them? Uh, Can I attack with one creature and leave back two to block the, the Headstrong Brute to trade? Well, the fact that Repeating Barrage is in their hand means, no, you can't, because let's say you attack with Hammer Skull this turn, and you leave back Sky Marcher and Legion Conquistador. Well, they're going to just either be happy with that trade and go with Fire Off Repeating Barrage at your face, or more likely, they'll fire it off on one of your creatures, and now you have to chump block. So they're essentially killing both of your creatures. That doesn't really seem like that's going to work out favorably for you either. So I think based on those two scenarios sort of working out poorly, the only choice is to really leave back three creatures and be like, all right, I'm going to set myself up for the the two-for-one double block. They can fire off the repeating barrage once to kill a creature, and then I just have to hope to win the top deck war against them. Yeah, not, I mean, not a great place to be in, but a no. place that could lead to you winning the game. Because if you swing out, you're almost assuredly losing the game, I think. Yeah, and I think there is an, an instinct that, at least this happened to me when I was playing this game, was there's the instinct of, well, I, I, I got to just try and race. Well, and I think part of that is that Headstrong Brute just literally says on it, Headstrong Brute can't block. Like, for right. me, that's like a pull towards me wanting to attack. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think that the process of going through, okay, well, what, what are my choices? I can attack with all three. What happens then? That doesn't seem like that's going to work out very well. I can attack with two. What's going to happen there? That's not going to work out very well. So what happens if I don't attack? How does that work out? Well, I can actually craft a series of events where that will lead to me winning, right? They'll kill one creature, I'll double block, kill the Headstrong Brute, and then they miss a couple times on their draws, and I hit a couple times on my draws. So I need luck on my side, but at least I'm setting myself up for a situation to win, whereas I think the other two choices set set you up to almost assuredly lose. Right, and I think it's really important just to take the time to, like, think through all those decision trees. And I think that's one of the things that streaming has has made me improve the most as a magic Mm -hmm. player because I have to talk through my decision trees. And then when I'm not sure what to do, even after analyzing my options, I get input from like 50 other people that are watching me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And seeing, seeing what people want to do and the reasons they list for wanting to do their things. Like I've, I've improved a ton since streaming. So even, you know, if you're not streaming or whatever, just take the time to sit down and actually ask yourself those questions. um, Especially if it's at a critical point in the match and you've got plenty of time on your clock. Yeah. And I mean, chat is just sort of ruthless and like, you feel like you have to describe why you're doing something. And just the the act of trying to uh, verbalize your thought process makes you realize mistakes you're making. When you go like, well, I want my instincts to do this. I want to do this. And then you start talking through it. And then you realize that that is not the right thing to do. So certainly recommend, even if you don't want to stream at home, when you've got decisions like this one, you really want to talk it out because I think putting it into words makes you realize uh, when decisions are correct and when they're not a lot more than you think they would. Yeah. Um, so we've got one more example of a board state that we want to look at here, perhaps the most complex and maybe 
seems like the smallest edge of the the board states we've looked at but i think it is an important one um so we have a whole different scenario here we've got a, a blue green mirror match for you though your deck is a bit grindier um this is a, a screenshot from a, a deck i played on youtube um if you have seen it or if it sounds familiar to you your board state the, the, the game sort of went as such your opponent is on the play they played a deep root warrior on turn two uh, you played a Kumena Speaker on turn one, uh, and now on turn three, you've added a Vine Shaper Mystic to the board. But they, the previous turn, put a Merfolk Branchwalker on the board and explored, revealing a Shaper Apprentice. The Shaper Apprentice ended up in the graveyard. So your opponent has gone two drop, two drop. They've not missed a land, right? They've gone Forest Island Island. They've played a 2-2. Two -two. They've played a 2-1 that is explored profitably, so it's a 3-2 and they've put the Shaper Apprentice into the graveyard. Let's just full stop there. What does that tell you? Yeah, so after after my opponent going 2-drop into 2-drop without missing a land, then revealing a, another good 2-drop, putting in the graveyard, tells me they really value hitting land drops pretty highly, and that they've already got, you know, a handful of actions that they want to cast that's maybe more expensive, powerful cards. Mm -hmm. So that tells me my opponent has got a good hand, and we're in for a game of Magic, and I need a plan accordingly to be able to deal with whatever spells they've got in their hand or whatever you know they've got something in store for me that's that's worse than a shaper apprentice for me um which is which is not good news it's very scary right yeah like when i see that happen they they have a, an efficient evasive threat because they have two merfolk in play already so that's gonna have flying i currently have no way to block that and they don't want it that leads me to believe that they have better stuff to cast in their hand than that and all they want is lands that's what that makes me think yeah not not a great spot to be in. Not a great spot at all. So on the following turn, we've got our Kumina Speaker in hand. We play a land, we drop a Vine Shaper Mystic, and we have a counter on the Speaker, and we've got a counter on the Mystic. So we've got ourselves a 3-3 and a 2-4 in play on turn 3. A really nice aggressive start. Now, their Deep Root Warrior is tapped. They've attacked us the last turn. We're both at 18, still early in the game. Their Merfolk Branchwalker as a 3-2 is untapped, and they have one blue mana available. You can attack with the Kamina Speaker here if you want to. What do you think about attacking here, Ben? I'm really not super thrilled about the idea of attacking. Our, our hand is four lands and a spike-tailed Ceratops, which to me looks like it's going to be pretty hard to close out this game anytime in the near future based on what we've got going on in our hand. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like we've got the tools we need to, to kill our opponent. So that tells me I don't want to be the aggressor. So right now I've got the choice of, do I want to trade my 3-3 for their 3-2 is the question I want to ask myself. Mm -hmm. Is the answer to that yes? Uh, I, I don't think it is. For the, for the reasons we just mentioned regarding the cards in hand and the spike-tailed Ceratops, I don't think we've really got the tools needed to close the game. Our 3-3 is higher value than our opponent's 3-2. It's got an extra point of toughness, and we know based on what our opponent did with what they explored, putting their Shaper Apprentice into the graveyard, that they've got other threats presumably bigger threats that they need need lands to cast out of their hand and right now our vine shaper mystic that we just cast as a 2-4 blanks both of our opponent's creatures barring no enhancements on their part so the 3-2 branch walker doesn't attack into it the 2-2 deep root warrior doesn't attack into it properly so we've got our opponent stonewalled so i think the the smartest thing to do here with our kumena speaker is just to hang back and play defense with it yeah, I think this is something that sort of base level looks like a, well, I should trade. I'm trading my 3-3 for their 3-2. I'm trading a card for a card. It gets a creature off the battlefield. Like, I think that's all sort of like a, a level one or level two play. But I think what you just did talking about how you are, you, you're, you just talked about playing out the game multiple turns in the future. You use the small information you received from their explorer and how that resolved 
to illustrate what you thought their game plan was going to be. So you're not only taking into account the cards in your hand, but you're taking into account what you think your opponent has in their hand. And you've decided that, yeah, that's like that's a fine trade of resources. You're going to trade a card for a card. But that is not going to be the most efficient use of your Kamena Speaker in this current board state with the cards in your hand and the information you have. And I think that's taking a lot into play just on turn three um, to make what's not really... Go- like, that's that's not what appears to be a game-winning or game-losing decision, but I really think it is. That losing that 3-3 this turn could really snowball in a, a very negative way. I mean, I, I don't know how this game is going to turn out, but... It seems like, based on what we know, that that could really be a very crucial decision point that it it doesn't seem like it is on the surface. Yeah, and a, another thought would be that it looks like we're in a Merfolk Mirror match here a little bit. Mm-hmm. You really don't want to be throwing away creatures before, like, because you've presumably got, you know, Pirate's Cutlass mm-hmm. or... Uh, a one with I the never, wind. What, not one with the wind. Uh, River Herald's oh, Boon. River I never Herald's remember Boon, the yeah. name of River Herald's Boon for yeah. some reason. But yeah, or or one with the wind. Uh, so leaving that creature around on the battlefield to maybe suit up with an enhancement is, is also a pretty big deal. Like, if you're a deck that's playing enhancements, trading your creatures off is not, not great for you. No, no, not at all. So... When we look back at those the, those four boar states, those two uh, opening hands, there are some sort of broad sweeping things that I, I think are important takeaways from them. Um, because we, we took sort of like very minimal uh, decision points or, or what looked like small decision points of like, do I want to attack with this one creature? Or do I want to play this spell over this spell or use one one more mana or one less mana to cast my stuff or things like that? But looked at planning things multiple turns ahead based on those decisions. So I think one of the main takeaways here from today is that you need to use all available information in play to play out these situations before you make decisions. Um, So not only what you know about your own cards, but what you think about your opponent's cards. What, how have they played this game? How have they crafted their board state? And what sort of information does that give you about the cards in their hand? I think that that's a really important thing to take into account when you're playing a game of magic. Absolutely. I think another big takeaway from all the stuff that we've we've gone through here, these scenarios, is that adding power and toughness to the board has a snowballing sort of effect. So the earlier you're able to add to your board presence, uh, the more potential damage that that power and toughness you've got on the board can do has. And it, it's power and toughness, not only not only creatures in this set, but enhancements are are a big way a big part of that as well in this set. So for example, that that one that one example we looked at had Pirate's Cutlass. We had the choice of playing Pirate's Cutlass or using a removal spell. Adding Pirate's Cutlass as two power of haste to our side of the battlefield really swung the race in our favor and was a better way to be an aggressor. Yeah, for sure. And I think the last thing is noticing when trades are beneficial to you and when they're beneficial to your opponent. It's a really important resource management tool in in these games. Uh, In the situation we talked about last with the holding back the 2-4, essentially was was two for one in your opponent in that current board state, right? The 2-4 was holding back their 3-2 and their deeper warrior. So you've essentially two-for-one them with the resources in play. Um, so you don't need to trade off your 3-3. You can sort of wait to see how that 3-3 is going to match up in future turns. Um, and that's just a, a, one of the many ways, like we talked about, the, the, the axes of resources. Your life total, your cards in play, your cards in your hand, the, the sort of value of each of those cards, and the mana spent on those cards, right? When you... We, we talked about last week when you get to, to cast a dive down in response to contract killing. Yeah, it's a one-for-one, one, right? 
Well, it doesn't feel like a one-for-one. No, it's so much better than a (laughs) one-for-one. Yeah, you're you're protecting your creature. You're trading one mana for five mana from your opponent when when they were hoping to get two treasures back. So, like, there's sort of a base level of thinking about, well, it's a one-for-one, but it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah. Whew. How'd we do? What what do we think? I think that's a lot to digest. We can probably just end there. Yeah, I think so. So next week is the Pro Tour. PT Albuquerque. Um, so hopefully we'll have some drafts to deep dive on uh, on Sunday when we record from the draft viewers on Friday and Saturday. That that was a fun one to get to do for Hour of Devastation. I'm looking forward to doing that for Ixalan. I don't know about you. Yeah, absolutely. Diving into the Pro Tour drafts is one of my my favorite things on the planet to do because I love seeing how my draft picks match up with people that are in that position that have qualified for the pro tour well if it's anything like how we matched up with shahar we're in for a real disagreement next week (laughs) yeah i hope hopefully it goes better than that yeah um all right as usual thanks to salty pretzels for our intro and outro music make sure you give that a listen and as well we've got our xln treasure hunt going on here we're down to only two achievements left uh one of them is infinite looping your opponent with sanguine sacrament and the other is milling your opponent out with overflowing insight so couple tough ones to do there yeah Um, and generation d20 has been crushing these he's full on like crossed off like eight or nine by himself yeah we might have to have him guest on the on the marathon stream he's uh just just been such a such a house for racking up those achievements yeah that'd be really cool so as a reminder uh you can tweet at lords of limited or an hashtag xln treasure hunt and if you're not on twitter you can email us screenshots at lords of limited at gmail.com and if you complete five of those you get entered into a giveaway for draft sets of ixalan we're going to give away four of those and for each one we accomplish as listener base we're going to stream for that many combined hours so we've already got locked a combined 16 hour ben and ethan stream whoop, get those whoop. last two crossed off and we'll yeah. be the full 18 hours gonna be so so fun all right if you guys want to get in touch with us individually come spam our streams please i am at twitch.tv slash lord tupperware ben is at twitch.tv slash mr metronome uh we're each on twitter on each of those handles we are also now on twitter as at lords of limited um and i have a youtube channel that's youtube.com slash c slash lord tupperware uh, i've got about six ixlon drafts and i just posted an innistrad draft up there this week for those of you jonesing for some spooky innistrad drafts from the flashback era yeah, if you've got any feedback about the show or questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Yep. Thanks, everybody. See you later.